How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Well, we couldn't resist it, could we? There's no way you can talk about the Irish diaspora in Britain without mentioning Liverpool. Let's face it, the city's virtually twinned with Dublin. The accent's been described as Irish with a cold, and the Catholic Cathedral is known locally as Paddy's Wigwam. Just a quick bit of housekeeping. During the interview, there was a technical issue with my mic, so I've had to re-record some of the questions. See if you can spot the join. Liverpool Irish Centre has been running since 1964, first of all in Mount Pleasant and now in Boundary Lane. How it's changed, the effects of lockdown and thoughts of the future are all on the agenda with my guests Patrick Gall, Acting Chair of the Coordinating Committee, Events Officer Angela Billing and Bar Manager Niall Gibney. There's an online gig with the rogues in the offing, so we glide straight past the how you doings to Patrick's first memories of the old centre. Uh, well, my mother was probably, she wasn't, a, she wasn't there right from the start, but she started going in the late 60s. So it was always sort of part of our lives, um, mainly my mother and my sister. My sister was a dancer. And then uh, we would go to functions and masses and uh, see bands and that sort of thing. Uh, and then the current Irish Centre, I got involved because my daughter started dancing. Uh, in fact, she's just left the house. She's now nearly 30 and she's got her own uh, kid who um, I'm sure, well, he's already listening to Irish music. He's eight weeks old, so I'm sure he'll be going to the Irish Centre soon. Uh, so it's a generational thing, really. And uh, you either get it or you don't. But, but it was such a good, good thing to get into. And I think I've really been sort of um, almost obsessed with Ireland since I was a teenager, really. Music, history, literature, uh, going to the place. And I've got to know through the Irish Centre many great people, see many great musical and other types of entertainment. Uh, and it's been, you know, a real privilege to be involved in the place, you know, sometimes. And what's your first memory of it? Actually, my first memory is a, a dance. I, I went to one dancing lesson. There was a lady called Maureen Bolger around the dancing school. And my sister, I think, was already dancing. And my mother took us both along and she made me go on the line to learn a step. And um, I got told off for pointing my left instead of my right foot. And uh, I ran back to my mum, probably in tears, and never went back. That's quite a vivid memory. Um, and I, I still can't dance to save my life. And um, I can't even do a one, two, three, but uh, I can play a bit. And uh, I've joined in many sessions and that sort of thing, but I can't dance. That's a quite a vivid memory, not just of the Irish Centre, but of, of of my early days, really. I was probably about six or seven. So that would have been in the old Irish Centre, circa probably 1970. It was a great, it was a great old place, uh, but this is a great, the, the place we've got now is a great place in a very different way and a different location. And we're still doing all the things that went on in the Irish Centre, really, with one or two exceptions. And we're doing some different things. So, you know, uh, life has evolved. It's changed, not ended. My first memory of the current place is is walking in and, and seeing Tommy Walsh and speaking to Tommy Walsh and having chats on a Saturday morning with Tommy Walsh, from whom I learned a lot and who was really the man who founded the first Irish Centre. Angela, what are your first memories? Um, I, 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 um, I didn't go to the old Irish Centre. Um, I've always gone to Ireland, but I never went to the old Irish Centre because my parents didn't. I stumbled across it one day 
and um, had the children with me and they all got involved straight away. They loved it. So um, daughter done music and dancing and the boys played football and, and GAA and just grew up in there then really, met loads of other families. And, and how did you get involved with the committee? Um, I think it's just um, from cleaning up the place and tidying around and doing stuff and volunteering for things. And um, I was asked to stand for the committee. And that was it there. And Niall, I have to ask, you've been with the bar, what, four or five years now? Yes, and so I started uh, three, four years ago, uh, just working maybe a shift a week on the bar. And then um, Angela's son was was the manager at the time. And then I was his assistant for about 12 to 18 months. And then he left about a year ago. And then and then I've been um, trying, to, trying to keep things ticking along through COVID as much as possible. And had you been a regular at the centre before that? Um, not at this centre, but me... Mum and dad met in the old Irish centre and um, all my grandparents and great uncles and great aunties used to go there and then we and then my granddad died uh, he was he, he had his wake in this Irish centre um, and his friends used to come here and still to this day um, his friends and friends of my great uncles come here now who, who I talk to uh, so that's that's why that's why I work here really so it's something that's gone on through the generations uh, Patrick was saying something like that. There are families who've been going since 1964, 65. Um, there are people who are sort of, if you like, synonymous with the place. Uh, there's good friends of ours, like a fellow called Joe England, who was on the first committee back in 1965. He's still going. Um, so there's plenty of people who are uh, true originals. And you see the families going back, you know, generations with the singing and the dance and the music. People like... Um, uh, the Lochrans and the Quinlans, they're still going. They were probably original uh, members. But I still think that it's a place where you can walk in and feel perfectly at home just on a one-off basis, and people tend to come back. So there's people I see in the bar who I don't know, and then suddenly you find that they're going week in, week out, and they've got nothing to do with the Irish community. They just like being in the place, you know, because it's a, it's a very welcoming you know, relaxed, laid-back place, and there's always something going on. You know, even if there's not a formal act going on, there's usually people making their own entertainment. So there are families, there are like, you know, there's sort of like almost a dynasty, but there's also a lot of people who are who are just finding the place, and that's what we've got to do to make it sustainable. We've got to keep bringing in new people, you know. So, Angela, you're involved with the events committee. Uh, prior to COVID, what would a typical week at the Irish Centre have been like, presuming there is such a beast? Well, we've we've had uh, different different big acts on, um, so we used to try and plan before COVID. We used to plan something biggish every month. So we've had names like we've had Davis, Sharon Shannon, um, Nathan Carter, Eleanor McAvoy. Uh, we've had some of the lads from the Saw Doctors, the Wolf Tones, Whistling Donkeys, the Logues. We've had comedians, Pat Short. Um, so we were always planning, you know, a few biggies a year. And then we'd uh, pepper in some tribute nights and a bit of a mixed bag, really, for everyone. There's something on every day um, and most evenings as well. Um, Monday Monday evening, we would have uh, courses um, in the centre with the traditional music lessons for children. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, we'd have um, afternoon teas, um, sequence dancing. Um, Tuesday evening, we'd have publicised classes. We'd have... Um, 
few of them fitness classes. We'd have boxing classes on a Wednesday. We'd have a fluke the Liverpool Irish fluke band on a Wednesday. We'd have Irish language on a Thursday evening. We'd have an uh, Irish community care. Uh, the advice service for the Irish community would, would work in partnership with us. We'd have a tea dance with them every fortnight. Um, and I think that's everything. And there's, there's, um, there's, there's more dancing on a Wednesday as well. There's a, a lunch club for the older pensioners and a lot of those pensioners would have been the ones who were, who were going to the old Irish Centre and have still followed, you know, and still come weekly to the Irish Centre, but even to this day. I mean, that's the weekday, most of the weekday stuff. So it's really about creating and maintaining a sense of the Irish community in Liverpool, right? I think that's right. I mean, I sort of struggle sometimes with the word community because the Irish community in Liverpool was once sort of geographically identifiable. There was a big community in a place called Scotland, Scotland Road, ironically, on the way out of town going north. And there was a smaller community in the south end around sort of uh, going towards Toxteth Way. Uh, there was a big church that they built uh, around the sort of uh, time of the famine, uh, a bit afterwards called St. Patrick's. The Irish came over in large numbers in the middle of the 19th century and had easily identifiable communities for, for well, probably for the best part of 100 years. But for example, the Scotland Road community was dispersed because they built the Mersey Tunnel and moved people out. Uh, and the, the waves of immigration sort of petered out a bit, really. So the last big one was probably just after the Second World War. And then since then, although there have been waves of Irish immigration, emigration, sorry, they've tended to go more to London, for example, or, or America. So... Um, I think we are a community centre uh, and I think we do principally still serve the needs of the Irish community, but there isn't, so, you know, like you, you, you spoke to recently to Leeds. If you go to Leeds, you get a sense that the Irish centre in Leeds is very much where the Irish community is. I don't think you can say that really about Liverpool. And I don't think you could say that when we were in Mount Pleasant either. Uh, so the, the old centre was sort of just on the edge of the centre of town and we're a couple of miles out. But the old Irish communities weren't sort of where the old Irish centre was. So I think that we, we welcome people from, you know, quite a wide geographical area uh, in Liverpool and in the region. And I think we are a community centre. But it's, it's quite difficult to say that we are there to serve the Irish community. And that's who and that's where the place is, because that's where the Irish community is. It isn't really. It's much more scattered now. I spent um, uh, most of the 80s in London uh, and I was very struck at how many first generation Irish people there were and how really uh, some areas you, you never heard anything other than Irish accents. It struck me walking around, for example, Kilburn in the mid 1980s. That was a far more Irish experience than you would get in Liverpool city centre. And I think that what happened in Liverpool was uh, there was a huge wave of immigration. I mean, there was probably, you know, at one time around 1850, 1860, when maybe 25, 30% of the city was actually born in Ireland, you know. And I think to some extent, the city's worn that on its sleeve for several reasons. Firstly, because of its proximity to Ireland and to Dublin. It's, it almost faces Dublin, you know. Uh, and secondly, because... The city has never really regarded itself as English. You know, there's, there's this theory about the exceptionalism of Liverpool and how Liverpool is different to any other English city. And your average, average Liverpudlian 
uh, glories in that. And I think, therefore, a lot of people will sort of look to their Irish roots, their Irish heritage, rather than being English, or they'll think of themselves primarily as Liverpoolian or Scouse uh, with, with an Irish heritage. So it still wears that um, heritage on its sleeve, even though I suspect, and I don't know the figures, compared to, say, Birmingham or London, we have far fewer first and second generation Irish people in the city now. I suppose that brings me around to the question of your own connections with Ireland. So I'm going to start with Angela, if I may. Angela, what's your family background? Yeah, my mum is from, uh, born in uh, on Rhine. It's a Gael top speaking area of Dungarvan, County Waterford. And she came over nursing in 1956 and stayed. My dad was English and that was it. We've always gone over, spent summer holidays in Ireland when we were growing up. And I've done the same with my children. Right, you are. And Niall, what's your background there? So all four of my grandparents were born in Ireland and different parts of Ireland. Um, West Meath, Fermanagh and Omar. And um, and then obviously, and then my parents died when I was quite young. So I uh, was raised by my grandparents as well. So I was raised around my grandparents and my great uncles who were all Irish. And that, that was that was what I was raised around. We we used to go to Ireland three or four times a year and we were going to move to Ireland, but we couldn't sell our house because it was not in the nicest part of Liverpool. You couldn't sell it. So I ended up getting raised in Liverpool instead. And Patrick? Just thinking that Niall said... I was raised in Liverpool with a great deal of regret in his voice, but uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, life would have been better if we were uh, raised in a cottage in Westmeath. I think. I think. Uh, uh, you, you think that? Definitely. Uh, well, my, I'm a, a Gaul, and they are from Ballyhale in Kilkenny. Um, my mother's uh, my mother was a furlong, and uh, her family were from Wexford and her mother was a Sloan from a place called Ross Trevor in County Down so um, we've done quite a bit of work on the family tree and there's some interesting tales and um, I think all the, all the great-grandparents were, were Irish and uh, we found out some quite interesting things about them and um, I think it was really my mother. My mother was the one who loved the Irish culture and my dad uh, although he was actually responsible for getting the license for the original Irish Centre because he was a, a licensing um, lawyer, uh, which was apparently quite a surprise at the time that we actually managed to get a license. Uh, he never really had anything to do with the place apart from being its lawyer, but um, my mother was, um, her, her big thing in life was to go to the Irish Centre twice a week. And, and so... You know, she um, she brought that back and she played the music and talked about the people she'd met. And and that's how it sort of that's how it came came to be. Uh, and she, as I say, she was a furlong from Wexford. And uh, she said that on her road, uh, which was like a council estate in uh, a place called uh, Club Moor in Liverpool, uh, there were five furlongs, none of whom thought that they were related, but they'd all come over from Ireland. And it's not a. It's a, it's a very common name in Wexford, but it's not a common name over here. And so that gives an idea of how sort of, sort of, I suppose, intensely Irish the, the background was, really.
You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. One of Liverpool Irish Centre's proudest boasts is the variety of goods available at its Irish shop. Niall explains all, and I'd advise that you have your pen and paper at the ready, just for the shopping list. Uh, me and Maureen, who's, she's worked for the centre for about 40 years, and for the old Irish Centre as well, we um, do the shop, and it's it's going really well. Um, I think the first lockdown, uh, we we seen you know figures uh, in the shop that was, you know, double what we would what, what we would have ever have done in the shop, and we then tried to build on that, and we've been building on it since over the past year, and just improving it and, and getting the shop better and better, and um, it's 100 percent like the 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 foremost place now for Irish food in this city is is now the Irish Centre shop. Um, we obviously want to keep building on that and, and keep improving the figures and improving the market and, and um, the publicity of the place. What kind of stuff do you do there? Uh, everything that you need. Uh, sausages, uh, black pudding, white pudding, Kelly's, Conic um, all the standard biscuits, your Kimberleys, chocolate Kimberleys, uh, jam marrows or Mikados, uh, whatever you call them, pub orange, uh, red lemonades, um, emerald toffees, uh, galaxy cheese, Calvita cheese, uh, Started selling gammon last week. Big things of uh, O'Kane's gammon. We've got O'Hara's cakes, uh, O'Kane's cakes, um, Kilmore cakes from Cork. Uh, can I stop now? <laughs> uh, Has Brexit changed that because we've tried to get stuff from Ireland? Yeah, I, definitely the first the first couple of um, since this third lockdown, um, there's been a little bit more of a supply issue, hundred percent with 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 shop staff. But hopefully that's coming to an end now and they're starting to get on top a bit more. And obviously with your Brexit and also Brexit and the lockdown at the same time, it's just made it even more difficult. But hopefully there's a light at the end of that tunnel now and we're starting to get, get back to normal now. And whose idea was the shop? The shop's been running in there for years, um, but it was, wasn't really utilised very well um, over the last couple of years. And... Now it's more of like a standalone shop, which is it's more popular now as a thing. Whereas beforehand, it was just the people who came in might pick something up, but now people are hearing about it from outside who don't even come to the centre and they come into the centre specifically for the shop. Whereas it wasn't that popular beforehand. Maybe part of that is because a lot of Irish people haven't been able to go home like they would have usually as well. So they've done more research to find out where they can get these products that led them to us. The old Irish Centre had a beautiful shop. There was all sorts in it, you know, CDs and jewellery and clothes and all sorts of things. And papers, you could buy a paper from every county in Ireland in the old Irish Centre. And uh, I'd love our current Irish Centre to get back to something like that. But what has happened, and, you know, the lockdown's been difficult in many ways for many people, but there's been some benefits for us. And one of the things is the shop has really improved and become... A lot more busy and you know partly because we can't open the bar we're sort of more focused on the shop but we're getting you know dozens of people in every day which is great during the day to, to buy this this stuff sausages and black puddings and white puddings and all that sort of stuff and it's been great for us you know it's one of the things in the lockdown which you know it hasn't all been bad you know mm-hmm. and uh, our shop has has really sort of come into its own in the last uh, 12 months. Uh, speaking of lockdown, you've done an awful lot of virtual events and things online. Um, yes, yes. Um, so 
we've done quite a lot of um, stuff online, so we've probably had about eight, nine different live stream singers. Um, we've had we've been having weekly health activities online. Um, we've got uh, yoga, beginners yoga. We've got mindfulness classes. We've started a Thursday fourth class recently. Um, and then other than that, we've done other things such as, you know, trying to just grow our, our reach generally and you know, all our online platforms. We've done a lot of work on that. Done a lot of work on our, our publicity and marketing. And our website's completely different. We started a blog, which we never used to have. And now that, that's like its own little thing now. And yeah, we've, we've done a lot of work. We, I think we're a lot more a lot more popular online now than we were a year ago. I think definitely. We did a run to Dungarvan. How did that work? There was a group of people who would run every day between the 21st and the 31st of December. And you count up your miles at the end of the day and you'd work out that you'd gone from, I don't know, Dublin to Tipperary or whatever it was. So we ran to, from Liverpool to Dungarvan and back because we have connections in Dungarvan. And then when we came back, we went via the Birmingham Irish Centre and Manchester and Warrington. And, and then each, each day there was different songs um, that we would share on the website and, and different posts and people would send pictures in and then we'd collate the pictures and the, you know, the pictures and the, the miles and we'd tell people, listen, we've got here today and we've got to such and such a place and we'd share songs or stories from that place to try and connect with people who couldn't get home to Ireland for Christmas. As part of the embassy's um, project to connect people, it was called, I think it was called To Be Irish at Home or something called, To Be Irish at Christmas. And so people, mostly in Ireland, did stuff. There was a few people in uh, in the UK did it as well. And um, there were all sorts of things going on. But that's what we did. We, we ran to Ireland. <laughs> and so each day we'd describe where we'd been and scenery and all that sort of stuff and then we do some singing and dancing on the way as well we had a virtual um christmas raffle as well uh that was like our first virtual online fundraiser and we raised you know almost three thousand pound off that as well so that was like a new thing for us as well Angela, organising events that are online rather than live uh, doesn't that suddenly become a really weird headache um yeah we just handed to nile really <laughs> 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 We we just get we collate all the info we can collate information stuff but now's the uh, now's got the magic. But certain people we could just approach and just say you know would you be interested in doing this? Other people would approach us, obviously they're trying to you know increase their exposure, you know so they'll approach us and we'll just say yeah go on sounds it, it works for both of us it helps us increase our exposure it helps them increase their exposure and it's like you know you're scratching each other's back really with some of them and some of them will do them because. They know us as the centre and they want to help us. So different people have got different um, mindsets going into doing a, 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 an online event for us, if you will. Had you mentioned Manchester and Birmingham and others, is there a kind of community of community centres there? Uh, not really. I mean, I think it's probably several organisations, I think, that try and sort of bring people together. And I, I from time to time, do meet people from other Irish centres, but they tend to be fairly standalone. Um I was on a, a meeting today run by the Irish in Britain where there were 60-odd people, uh, several of whom were from Irish centres. There doesn't really, there isn't really much interaction. The last person I met was probably, I've met, the year before last, before lockdown, I met somebody from Nottingham and somebody from Leeds. It's the sort of thing where you think we really should do more of this, but, you know, we're all 
we're all busy people and we're all volunteers. Well, well, Niall isn't, but you know, most of the people on the committee, well, all the people on the committee are volunteers. And it's it's quite a big ask to say, I'm gonna go over and see people in the Newcastle Irish Centre, you know. We probably could do more virtually, and maybe this is something that we need to look at. These umbrella organizations are formed like Irish in Britain. Whether they actually bring people from different Irish centres together is another question. You know, I'm not sure that's really that that really um, is effective in in making us link up with Manchester and Leeds and Birmingham. We probably ought to really. We'll be back with Liverpool Irish Centre in a moment, but first a touch more housekeeping. If you haven't subscribed to the Plastic Podcasts just yet, then why the heck not? Here's your perfect opportunity. Simply go to our homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address in the space provided. One confirmatory click later, and you'll be getting details of each and every fresh podcast as it happens. And now it's time for the Plastic Pedestal. This is where I invite one of my guests to talk about a member of the diaspora of personal, cultural or political significance to them. This week, Dr. Lawrence Cox nominates a true pioneer. So I have in mind uh, another Irish Buddhist for you who is a trans pioneer. So somebody who was born Laura Dillon, but came to identify as Michael Dillon was the first man, uh, trans man ever to have phalloplasty, so to have a penis built for him. This is in the Second World War when you could change identity relatively easily and plastic surgery was making leaps and bounds because of particularly airmen would be fat, you know, would have horrendous burns and so on. So he passes as a man. He qualifies as a doctor in Trinity. Um, and he writes a pioneering book about sexuality, gender, trans issues, and so on, in 1946. And then in the early 1950s, he is outed by the British tabloid press. Yeah. Remember, they don't have the internet, but they go back and they go, weren't you born Laura, Dylan? And he is an incredibly ethical, but deeply private person. He flees, he's working as a ship's doctor. He goes to India, he never comes back. And in India, he becomes a Buddhist and he winds up in Ladakh, so the Tibetan part of India. And he, tell, he insists on having been given absolutely zero white privilege. So the rule in monastery is, seniority in terms of when you get in there, not your age and so on. They would have made an exception for him, but he goes, no. So they put him right at the bottom with these teenage Tibetan boys who were working in the kitchen. And it is Ladakh, it is bitterly cold. These are, you know, everybody else is used to this stuff. Um, and he has this, I'll just tell you this one story about him. He has a little flashback. He remembers himself in the club in London. And he talks about them bringing him his pillow, because he's a gentleman, right? Bringing him his pillow about the wonderful breakfast and so on. Uh, and he's got this moment of, my God, I gave up all of this. And then he says, but you know, then I looked at the faces of my friends. 
and you know they were dirty and they had rubbish teeth and uh, we were all drinking this you know strange watery tibetan tea with a lump of dough in it and the moment passed and i was very happy to be there and it's such an extraordinary act of courage to remake yourself both as a man but then as you know i'm a peer to these people they're my peers. I don't want to be back in the club. I'm not hankering after that. I'm delighted to be where I am. Extraordinarily brave and ethical individual who deserves an awful lot more attention. Lawrence Cox there. And if you want to hear more of what Lawrence has to say, why not listen to his interview? Simply go to the episodes page at www.plasticpodcasts.com or seek it out on Spotify, Amazon or Apple Podcasts. Now back to the Liverpool Irish Centre, and I want to follow up on comments that Patrick made earlier in the interview. If the Irish community isn't as concentrated in Liverpool as it used to be, then does that mean that the centre has become more about the city rather than it does about the Irish in Liverpool? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, and I think that's one of the fundamental questions we have to uh, grapple with over the next 10 or 20 years. Um, I mean, probably, you know, somebody would, you know, some people regard it as heresy to say it's anything but an Irish centre, but we're in a, you know, a, a, an area of Liverpool which could really do with a, a good community centre. Um, and I think that if we get the building, most things, if you get the environment right, if you get the building right, then they tend to work, don't they? If you make places nice, people want to come, whether they're Irish or Scottish or whatever. Um, people like to be in nice places. So if we can carry on making the Irish Centre a nice place to be, and we've got some plans that I hope will come off in the next couple of years, uh, if we enhance the premises, we'll, we'll attract people from, we'll attract more people from the local community and, and from wider beyond, even if they're not Irish. And I actually think now, you see, when the old Irish Centre was formed back in the 60s, the Irish didn't have a particularly good... PR in this country, it's all changed now. You know, the, the, the Irish thing is a very strong brand now. And so I don't think there's any sort of suspicion or mistrust or antipathy uh, that, that we used to have uh, even, even into the 80s. The last, um, last 25, 30 years have transformed the Irish brand. And I think that people are comfortable going into an Irish centre where perhaps in the 60s and 70s they weren't. So I think that you raise a very good point, and I think it's something that we've got to really sort of think about because I think that we do have to become uh, wider than Irish. And in fact, that's already been happening over the last 10 years, and you quite often see events at our Irish Centre which have nothing to do with Ireland. Uh, but I think that's, that's one of the ways that we will evolve over the next 10, 10 or 20 years. And there's, is there any kind of outreach then that takes place from the centre to the rest of Liverpool? Yeah, there's, there's um, well, before lockdown, there were, um, we were doing educational things in schools. The Irish dancing uh, people will take their skills elsewhere, as will the musicians. Um, we don't have what you would call an outreach worker. We have um, Clodagh Dunn uh, does health and well-being in the community. I'm not sure whether she'd be called an outreach worker, but, um, you know, the Irish Centre doesn't just sort of sit there and wait for people to come in. We do go out into the community and do all sorts of things. You know, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a parade on 
uh, 17th of March, which is run by people connected at the center. Uh, and you'll see uh, dancers performing uh, around St. Patrick's Day and that sort of thing. Uh, it's probably something we could do more of, uh, but I think that, you know, we, we are out in the community, you know, appearing on local radio and that sort of thing. Uh, but again, that, that, that's something that we need to think about as well to try and attract more people into the place because we're, we're like, like everywhere else, and this is going to become, I think, probably more of an issue post lockdown. We'll, we'll be competing to get people into the centre. You know, we've got to remain, we've got to be sustainable by being viable and relevant. So we'll have to offer things that people want to come, want to come to. Uh, and what's also happened in Liverpool in the last uh, probably five or 10 years, there's been a proliferation of Irish pubs. There's probably about a dozen Irish pubs in Liverpool now. And so we have to, fi we have to find some way of competing with that, not being an Irish pub, but uh, offering entertainment and culture that people can't get in all of these other places. Angela, Niall, what's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, I agree with Patrick. Um, you know, we do do a lot in the community, really, with the health and well-being, And also we've got a food bank as well. We're a food bank drop-off point. Um, for fans supporting food banks, that's Everton and Liverpool combined fans. They normally collect food outside the ground. Well, of course, they haven't been able to do that now. So we've been acting as a food bank drop-off point for them. Um, yeah, and, and as Patrick said, we just have to keep relevant and we have to keep doing things, you know, and hampers the Christmas, make sure the people who need us, we're reaching them, you know. Yeah, I think um, a lot of um, obviously before before COVID, because the the area where our where our centre is, it, it's a very diverse area, and you know I say not so much outreach, but to the point where lots of different communities were coming in to our centre and spreading the word about our centre and um, having parties here, and so that that is also in a way I would say a community thing because we're helping we were helping different communities very often. We had the Nepalese community and. And they, they were telling their friends and then more, more of the Nepalese community were coming in and we had a community of like Corral and uh, Catholics. They, they were coming in quite regularly and, and, and they, a lot, there was a lot of different, you know, people spreading the word and recommending us to have their conferences, parties and all these other different types of events in the Irish centre because we were so welcoming in comparison to other, you know, social clubs and things of that nature we were so welcome to all these different communities so they were always coming to us if that makes sense because this podcast is about the Irish diaspora and one of the things that a lot of my interviewees have said in particular about being raised in the 70s is this sense of having a foot in both countries and a home in neither uh, when you look at who you are do you think you're more English or Irish or are you simply from Liverpool I've never felt English in my life apart from when England played cricket. I used to be really embarrassed about this, but actually there's quite a lot of Irish people think that. I mean, curiously, Martin McGuinness was a huge English cricket fan. So uh, we were, I don't think we really had um, the Irish thing sort of forced upon us and, you know, we had to do Irish things. But I think that it was a... Uh, being from Liverpool in the 70s, uh, growing up in the 70s, you had a sense that the rest of the country didn't like Liverpool very much, and sometimes with good reason, you know. Uh, and this sort of uh, trickled into the 80s as well. And so 
you, you sort of felt a hostility towards Liverpool. I mean, famously, um, Thatcher's government talked about the managed decline of Liverpool. That was going to be the strategy until Hasseltine came along. And Liverpool was a, a place which was and had been for a very long time uh, a sort of bastion of uh, militancy and trade unionism. Uh, there's a lot of strikes. And that was, to some extent, you could, you could trace that you know, through to the Irish connection of James Larkin, you know, back in, well, you know, over 100 years ago. And so there was a tradition, I think, in Liverpool of, of being a bit sort of anti-establishment. And so we probably, we probably copped on to a bit of that. Uh, and, and I think that there was a, a sense being in Liverpool in the 70s and 80s, and, and you probably got this in, in sort of mining communities as well, that the establishment was against you. Because Liverpool had this other string to its bow, which was it felt like an Irish city. It felt like a city that looked out. It didn't look into the rest of the country. It didn't look into Manchester and Birmingham. It looked out to, to Ireland and America. So to, to answer your question, did you feel excluded from both? Not really, because I think we had a strong sense of being from Liverpool and a strong element of that was being from Ireland. I mean, we even had our own sort of sectarian struggles. I mean, there was quite a lot of sectarianism in Liverpool, probably, you know, even after the Second World War. So we had a lot of this sort of the Irish um, sort of connotations, even though we were living in what was geographically an English city. I never really felt uh, felt like excluded from everywhere. I, I felt very strongly that I was from Liverpool and that there was a big element of that, which was being from Ireland. But I didn't ever really feel that I was from England. I didn't really want to be, really. It didn't sort of bother me. Um, I mean, when I went to other parts of England, it was slightly sort of disorienting to, to meet lots of people who felt quintessentially English, you know, East End of London or, you know, other places. Um, and I, I never, and still don't feel remotely English, but it doesn't bother me. And, I, and I've always felt very proud to be from Liverpool. And when people ask me, where are you from? I say I'm from Liverpool. What about you, Angela? Yeah, pretty much the same, really. Um, feel about as strong as Liverpool and Irish, you know, like Patrick. Um, never felt particularly English and um, never followed England as a team in anything. Always veered for Irish and, and my children are the same, really. Um, it, there's definitely a Liverpool Irish thing, then. Um, yes, same. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I'd only really supporting London football because I'd have more chance of, of, of winning. But I definitely support Ireland and rugby if it was Ireland v England. And um, there's definitely a South thing where there's, there's definitely Irish roots there, which makes you, I'd say, quite a bit different to other Scousers without Irish roots. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely a Liverpool. First and foremost, Liverpool Irish. One of the nice things I got involved with, I got to know uh, Irish football supporters through uh, the Irish Toffees. Um, and uh, they would come over in the hundreds every week at one time. And, and one of the reasons they came, it wasn't just to watch Everton, it was to watch, it was to, it was to, to come to Liverpool. They love coming to Liverpool. And there's people, you know, before lockdown, there'd be plenty of people coming to Liverpool for the weekend. A, because it was cheaper than going out in Dublin, and, uh, and B, because they loved Liverpool's nightlife. 
And one of the reasons they do is they, they feel welcome here because I think they almost feel that they're sort of home from home, you know. You mentioned that in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't a popular thing to be from Liverpool as far as the rest of the country was concerned. And also that the, the, the same thing could be said about uh, being Irish in this country. So do you think either of these have changed? Oh, yeah, I think the Irish brand's really strong now. I mean, I think that's, um, you know, in the partly because of the Troubles, well, yeah, largely because of the Troubles, the 70s and 80s were very difficult. There was obviously, you know, I mean, growing up in the 70s, every night on the telly almost there'd be pictures of, you know, some sort of terrible goings-on in Northern Ireland. And, of course, that spilled over into this country in the mid-70s with bombings in Birmingham and Guildford and places. Uh, you'd have people on the on the telly every night on the nine o'clock news. It was one of the first items every night, what was going on in Ireland. It was it was really good news. And probably in the same news item, you'd have uh, a strike in Liverpool at Fords or, you know, the, the refuse collectors or down at the docks or whatever. And it was certainly my, my sort of consciousness growing up was uh, it was usually bad news. And I think that really, I mean, I left Liverpool in the 80s to go and study elsewhere and then I worked elsewhere. And I was very conscious that there was a, a very strange attitude to people from Liverpool, uh, from people elsewhere in the country. They thought you were a bit odd. You know, they thought that you were probably lawless, up to no good, uh, probably had a criminal record, that sort of thing. There was a lot of stereotypes, which was reinforced by the media. And that's actually very um, similar to the treatment of Irish people. I mean, it's not that long ago that Irish people were regularly lampooned as being not sort of fully formed human beings, you know, punch magazines in the 19th century and later. And lots of very respectable people, including people like Winston Churchill had a very, very low regard from, for the Irish. And that's, that sort of uh, carried on until relatively recently. Then in the 80s, of course, uh, you know, things like the hunger strikes and all that sort of thing that was going on, that, that was, that again gave a very bad um, impression to English people of what was going on in Ireland. And then it started to change. And I think part of the reason it changed was cultural. I think you had people like the Pogues, um, you know, English people started liking Irish music. You had Jack Charlton, who was a great Englishman, managing Ireland. And one of the great things about Jack Charlton was he kept telling the English people how great the Irish people were, you know, and how great Ireland was. And so we saw the start of a change in the 80s. And then, of course, by the end of the 90s, there was the peace process, and that helped. And it wasn't dissimilar in Liverpool because I saw, I came back to Liverpool in the late 80s, about 1990. And um, Liverpool was still not in a great place. But by 2000, Liverpool had started to change. And by 2008, we were capital of culture and we you know, built a new retail place and the place has started to buzz again. And now I think Liverpool is second or third top tourist place in, in the country. And so it, it's been sort of nice to be part of both things, really. The improvement of the brand of Ireland and the improvement of Liverpool's reputation. And now Liverpool... I think most lots of people come to Liverpool to study and stay. Lots of people come to the weekend and keep coming back. We just need them to come to the Irish Centre. And Angela, has that changed for, for, for you and you for your children as well? 
Yeah, I think so. I think I'm, they're really proud of Liverpool. And, and it, if you're looking at it from a, a visitor's point of view, if anyone comes over from Ireland, it's it's lovely to take people around Liverpool and show them the places. And yeah, I think it's it, it, it really is. It's, I'm really proud to be from Liverpool. Angela Billing there. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Hashtag, we all come from somewhere else. Listen to us being all 21st century. In this last section, we talk more about changes to Liverpool, plus also the rise of the Irish bar and thoughts of the future. But I think partly it's down to what I said before about making places nice. I mean, Liverpool is now a really fine-looking city. There's still some pretty... Um, there's one or two neighbourhoods there's quite a few neighbourhoods that still need uh, a lot of care and attention uh, outside of the city but you know if you went from if you started the city say up by the cathedrals and walked down and went to Liverpool one and then walked down to the Albert Dock you'd, you'd think you were in one of the finest European cities I, 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 was, there, I was there in September and I, I was a student there back in them between 84 and 88 and the the difference is 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 quite incredible it is a completely different city it is yeah and i think that uh, we've always had this heritage of very fine buildings um you know there's, there's some I mean, the city's now talks about quarters you know like the georgian quarter and that sort of thing and you know some of the streets are stunning and uh, there's a lot of uh, media, a lot of film companies, Netflix, people like that, filming Liverpool a lot. Around around the university, uh, there's a lot of filming going on. And so it's actually a really nice place to to spend a day or two, to, to walk around, you know. And uh, I, I think that somebody, probably, uh, pro- probably Hesseltine started it in fairness when he said, you know, we can do something with the Albert Dock. And there was a time when the only thing that was sort of talked about in Liverpool was the Albert Dock, but it's not now. You know, Liverpool is has got some really... I mean, I think Liverpool Cathedral, the Anglican Cathedral, is one of the, the great buildings in the country, you know. Uh, it's got a lot of attractions. And the other thing Liverpool's got, which I think causes people to stay, is sport. Um, so it's got a tremendous history of, of sporting events, not just football, you know, racing golf, all sorts of, uh, it's, it's very good for all sorts of sports. So there's a lot of things for people to do here as well. And then we haven't mentioned music really. It's got, it's probably still uh, the capital of pop music. Yeah, definitely. Um, even, well, I'm 31 now. And when I was um, 18, 19, 20, the city is a, it's a completely different ball game now than it was then. It's so different. Um, crazily different. Like when we was, when I was fifteen years ago, there was like five restaurants in the city, and now there must be five hundred. Do you know what I mean? And um, the the amount of bars has just mushroomed like times by ten in like twelve years. Do you know what I mean? And it's just crazy. And every time you go into town, there's like fifteen new new places that people know about. And I'm sure we don't all keep up on on top of every new place that comes up. There's so many. Um, but yeah. It's, Stigma's definitely going as well, I think. Nowhere near as bad as it used to be. You talked about um, uh, an, an, an Irish brand. 
and also that um that, that there's this um this rise in the number of um of uh of irish bars in liverpool and is 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 that something that worries you that there's a kind of sort of like a prepackaged sense of irishness that's kind of like made available um i wouldn't say it worries me i think sometimes it's a bit sort of off-putting and unattractive because they don't really need to try i mean you know there's a very natural sort of welcoming brand anyway you don't really need to go over the top you know they've got lots of good music they they know how to um they know how to do the the alcohol bit you know uh they know how to have a party but in liverpool there's i think it's, it's called irish corner now i think there's like half a dozen irish bars basically doing the same thing within within 100 yards um and you know, they call things like Molly Malone's, you know, I don't think you really need that. And certainly when I was in London going around Irish bars in the 80s, it, it, was, an, it's a, it was a much more natural experience. And so if you sit in the Irish centre bar, I think you get a much better Irish experience than going to one of the, uh, the bars in town. It, wasn't, it doesn't worry me. I think it's really catering for what is very big in Liverpool, which is the, um, the Hen and Stag Night sort of brigade you know so it is what it is it, it really i don't think it it really competes with us and there's one or two bars like the liffey and fanagans which have been established for a decades now but in the last five or ten years quite a few have sprung up and it's obviously catering for a market there's one called punch tarmies which is huge it's like a a cavernous place uh at the end of parliament street i wouldn't go there myself angela would you um i've been in them Never out of the place. <laughs> Never out of the places. <laughs> no, uh, I've been in them, but I, I, I think you get a better feel of Ireland in the Irish Centre. So, what do you think's the difference then? Uh, the people, definitely. The people, uh, the staff, um, and just it is the people, really. Full stop. And Niall, I presume that you're rarely out of these bars yourself, you know, just for research purposes. I only go to one bar and just far away. I'm really, you know what I mean? I've got no time to go to other bars, really. Um, I, I would say that I'm not worried at all about, you know, any other Irish bars. I think, you know, keep making them all you want. And, and the more inauthentic they are, the more people it's going to send to us. Um, I think, obviously, it is the people and it's the characters which is which draws people to us. And... Because we're we're not just a bar that exists to to make money for for profit, you know. We 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 exist to we use our money to support the community, and I think definitely now with COVID, I think even we're going to be even more popular. I mean, you know, the government closed us down for the first lockdown. We reopened for like three months and then shut again. We reopened again for another month, and like every single event we put on was was popular, and every single thing that we put on had a good amount of people at, you know, so I wouldn't be worried at all. And like you say, with the, it's with the people, it's also a very traditional um, vibe when you come in here. It, look, it looks traditional, it feels traditional, and it is like being in a completely different place. And especially in the local area, when you come into the Irish Centre, it's like being in a different postcode, you know, it's, I wouldn't be worried about other bars at all. We've we've talked an awful lot about the past um, with regards to the, um, the, the the Liverpool Irish Centre, and particularly, obviously, you've made mention now that um, that COVID has meant that you've had to change an awful lot of the ways that you've 
you you've entertained people and that you've engaged with uh, with your membership and 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 reached out and, and and so forth so i suppose the question is because times are changing because it's like the relationship of 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 the Irish Centre with Liverpool and so forth is one of those things that can be constantly evolving and moving on. What do you think that the future holds for Liverpool Irish Centre? Um, I think we we keep improving, we keep getting better, as Patrick said about um, improving the centre. Um, and if we get another 10, 20 years in this current centre with with a new lease, then you know we keep we keep doing well financially and we keep improving the place and. Just, just to be the best that we, we can be, the best it's possible for us to be in, in every single way, um, whether it's vir- like virtual events as well. And we, we'll still keep incorporating some of that in, into, into us as we move into the future, but we also need to make sure that we don't go too deep into that and we, we retain the tr- traditional aspects of what we are, because that is fundamentally, we are about getting people together. So, you know, hopefully we can just keep, keep, keep doing that, keep improving. And what are your thoughts, Angela? Yeah, I think uh, we just have to be adaptable as well to the situations uh, which we proved recently we can. We've moved into different tiers and adapted to them tiers. We had to uh, we had to all become waitresses and um, cooks in the kitchen and and adapt in our events. Um, we we don't, we did a, a chipper van night, which was great. Where we had to have food, so we hired in a chip van for the night, a chipper in the car park, and we. We showed Roddy Doyle's the van, and that was a really popular night. I think you've just got to keep reinventing yourself, really, to to suit situations. Uh, yeah, I think we just need to keep coming up, keep coming up with ideas. I thought that the the chipper van night was one of the best ideas we'd we'd ever had, and that was a, a great success. Uh, I'm very keen that we uh, uh, keep on improving the environment. And one of the things we're doing. Hopefully this year when we're allowed back is is sorting the garden out because we've got um, probably got we've got a garden that's about forty meters long and we could really do good things with it and uh, uh, so we've started the sort of groundwork on that so that's one of my big uh, hopes but I also want to see we haven't really done more than maintain and decorate and I want to see us do some proper refurbishment and some extensions to the premises so that we have a, a better shop and a better office. And um, and then I think we'll be we'll be really well set for the next 20 years. And now the final question, um, which is, um, I asked this of, um, of, the, um, of the, the trio from, from Leeds Irish Centre, so it seems only right to ask it of, uh, of you guys, which is to give us three words that, uh, that sum up Liverpool Irish Centre to you. And if I can start with Niall. Family, um, loyalty and history. Angela? Humour, heart and togetherness. And finally, Patrick. Characters, culture and laughter. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guests, Patrick Gall, Angela Billing, and Niall Gibney of Liverpool Irish Centre. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Lawrence Cox, music by Jack Devaney. The Plastic Podcasts are supported using public funding by Arts Council England.